Father, as we turn to your word now, we echo the words of the psalmist and we say, open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. May it be so even now, according to the Spirit's power, in Jesus' name, amen. Someone asked me how in the world I could preach Ephesians 1 last week and not preach Ephesians 2 this week. And that's all I needed to hear. So if you have a Bible, you can find the second chapter to the letter we call Ephesians. And we are in for some delightful, delightful realities. Ephesians is a great book because it's good for new Christians. It's good for older Christians. Notice I'm not saying old Christians. Um, but it's great because it reminds us about who God is, maybe startlingly so. It reminds us about who we are apart from Christ, definitely startlingly so. It reminds us who we are united to Christ, Definitely, 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 startlingly so. And it shows us how these things affect the way we should even think, praise, live for the glory of Christ, even in our everyday lives. It's also a great chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, because it is greatly controversial. And it's not healthy to like controversy for controversy's sake. I've known someone who's like that before who, or who struggled with it. Sometimes we all like a little controversy, but sometimes it also is helpful because it really gets our attention uh, because uh, we, we listen or pay attention a little bit more because sometimes, even in redemptive history, it's been the controversies that have led to the clarities. Even think about books of the Bible like the book of Galatians. It doesn't get more controversial than what was going on and therefore the Apostle Paul had to address the issue in that awesome, beautiful uplifting book we know as Galatians, but it, be, it came because of controversy. So Ephesians 2 is going to be our text. Uh, I absolutely can't wait uh, for Ephesians chapter 2. I hope you feel at least 10% similar. Uh, we're going to have our hearts stirred, no doubt, by God's Spirit if we look and pay attention to what He has to say in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's jump right in and be warned. Um, it doesn't end, it doesn't begin on a high note. It begins on a low note, but it's really important. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, so we were spiritually dead, not physically dead, because notice we were, we're walking, so we're alive in one sense, dead in another sense. I think of horror movies. Uh, following the course of this world. So we're not following God in His goodwill. We're not following God in His good purposes. He's the Creator. He knows what's best uh, to orient our living. No, we are not following... Uh, his ordinances were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Everyone agrees that that's following demonic forces, following satanic forces. And so here we are spiritually dead, but to add insult to injury, we're not only spiritually dead, we're following not God, but we're following uh, that which would equate to something satanic. Then it says in verse 3, among whom we all, notice the Bible is very inclusive, just not always where people want it to be inclusive. 
So this isn't just for the people who are you think are worse than you, people you read about on the nightly news or on the internet or who you think are bad people. Notice it is all-inclusive. It says there, among whom we all once lived. So notice we are the living dead because we're living, verse 3, but we're dead in verse 1. So it's spiritually dead, but we are definitely alive and acting. Once lived in the passions. Passions are sometimes used as a word for good things, strong desires, but here it's obviously bad things, passions of our flesh, not passions for the glory of God and the good for fellow human beings, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by Nature, not environment, not because of education, by nature, children of wrath, children of fury, like the rest of mankind, also very inclusive. Pretty heavy three verses. I have found, this is not gospel truth, I have found over the years of being a Christian, Christians actually actually like to study these things because it helps them to understand how great Jesus Christ is as a Savior. And so if they rub you the wrong way, allow that to be a catalyst to move you toward coming to grips with reality from God's perspective so that you can then come to grips with the reality of the absolute matchlessness when it comes to the grace of God shown to us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ who would save us from such a state. I like to go low and dark, not because I'm masochistic spiritually or theologically, but if it's true, I want to know it. And as a pastor, I want you to know it because it will help you to see just how amazing grace is. It's more amazing than you probably even thought it was. I heard a pastor a number of years ago say, turn to your neighbor and say, I'm perfect. Now, I just want you to know that if I ever say, turn to your neighbor and say anything, um, I probably have lost my ever-loving mind. So um, why, why do evangelicals do such weird things? I mean... I don't know. I do weird things. Don't get me wrong, but I'm going to try not to do that one. Um, maybe turn to your neighbor and say, you're dead in trespasses and sins and a child of wrath like the rest of mankind. How about that? No. <laughs> be warm and be filled. Let's close in prayer. We, got, we should be laughing, I think. But Now, okay, let's nuance it. You could, please don't, turn to your neighbor and say, positionally, I am perfect in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that, I don't think, is what that pastor had in mind. Though that would be true. Turn to your neighbor and say, we need a different pastor. (laughs) It really is dark. By nature, children of wrath. Unbelievers don't believe this, but lots of professing Bible-believing Christians don't believe this. By nature, children of wrath. There can be some debate about children of wrath as in under the wrath of God or even children, spiritual children, expressing wrath, expressing anger against others and against God. Both are actually true. But please notice the Bible teaches the the universal reality of all humanity. Every single person, he's inclusive two different times, by nature, 
children of wrath. Sometimes people look beautiful. They look handsome. But by nature, spiritually speaking, we need someone to not help us with the spiritual sniffles, spiritual sickness. We need someone to save us from spiritual death is what we need. And we have that in Christ. That's why this is so exciting and so important. We're not going to take the time to go there, um, but... In, a, in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, we'd have something similar. Remember in Romans 3, as Paul's rounding out his argument, he eventually says, there's none good, no, not one. Or there's none righteous, no, not one. I get him confused because one is in Psalm 14 and one is in Romans chapter 3, but they're teaching the same thing. No one good, no, not one. Well, that makes sense in Ephesians 2 because we're children of wrath, dead in trespasses and sins. Now, I know enough to know we should nuance that because I know the Bible teaches that people can be good and that no one is good. And the Bible's not contradicting itself. Which is why I nuance and say, capital G good, there's none. Lowercase g, there's good and there's bad and people do good and bad because there's relative good, right? Right? People who are made in God's image because of the restraining work of the Spirit, because of common grace, do relative good in this world, right? Not not everyone is acting as bad as they could be. Uh, I like to say even pirates have a code, but they're still pirates. They're still wanted criminals. Lowercase g, good, just like lowercase r, righteous. But in the ultimate sense, because we're dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind, no one does capital G good, none righteous, no, not even one. And so, friends, we have a huge problem. This is not good news. This is bad news. But it's true news. And how about this? We'll never understand the glories of God's grace. We'll never join the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of His glorious grace, to the praise of His glorious grace, if we don't understand grace. And grace is understanding, as we're about to see, God takes spiritually dead people and He makes them alive. What could be better? Answer, nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. Salvation is not a reward for what God sees in us because what He sees is dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath by nature, even as the rest of mankind. I hope you're ready now to move past the downer and seeing the greatness of God. It says in verse 4, But God, radical contrast, radical difference, but God being rich. Reminds me of chapter 1 where God lavished His grace on us. Rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Please, please, please notice it wasn't that God saw that glimmer of hope in our eye and our hearts and, and He and He saw we were inclined toward good, but maybe we had the wrong education or the wrong family or the wrong environment or the wrong societal programs. And so then He stepped in and loved us because He saw something in us. It's not it at all. And what happens is dead in trespasses and sins, but God, the great love with which He loved us, it's a different kind of love than the kind of love we would typically show someone. Then verse 5 says, don't miss this, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So there's no question about when this happens, even when it's at that time. 
some of the best words you'll ever read. After the comma in verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. Please notice he doesn't say, and, and he restored all human beings the opportunity and desire and will to do this. No, we go from dead to made us alive. That's what happens here. That other might be an interesting idea, but it's not in Ephesians. It's not in the Bible. It's not biblical Christianity. We're dead and he makes us alive. Who is the acting one? Who is the one who's doing something? God, right? This is why in theology we say salvation in true, authentic, biblical Christianity is monergistic. And if you came here and paid big bucks for big words, you're welcome. It's monergistic. It's not synergistic. It's not God working together with us. Other religions teach that. Biblical Christianity does not teach that. Biblical Christianity, mono, God, the one and only one, makes us alive. He has to do it. Dead people don't do things. Dead people don't do things for themselves. They don't do things for others. And he's using the analogy for spiritual death. Spiritually dead people don't do, do things either. God makes us alive. And I don't know a lot of things, but I've been around the block enough times to know that not everybody believes this. And if you don't believe this, I'm glad you're here. If you do believe this, I'm glad you're here. But we're understanding the good news that God makes us alive. Because if you're spiritually dead, you would never otherwise be alive. This is great. This is fascinating, but it is rattling to our minds. I didn't grow up thinking this way. I went to church almost every Sunday. I didn't think this way. I don't want to do always and nevers and that kind of stuff and paint with too broad of a brush, but lots and lots and lots and lots of people who profess to be Christians, and I'm glad that they do, don't believe this stuff. This is amazing. Maybe the controversy can lead to greater praise to God like the Apostle Paul does in chapter 1. He made us alive together with Christ, together with Him. And then he explains what he means by this after, in my translation, they put a dash there, by grace you have been saved. Grace is amazing. (laughs) More amazing than we realize. I know at least of one denomination who changed their hymnal because they thought it was too offensive to say, who saved a wretch like me. And I think they changed it to something like sinner, as if that's better. (laughs) I'm going to stop. He saved a wretch like me. Because everyone is a wretch. (laughs) Everyone is dead in trespasses and sins. And so anybody who has ever been saved or ever will be saved comes out of a state of being a child of wrath by nature. Oh, wow. And so again, it's going to make me feel maybe bad about myself so that I can look outside of myself and look to someone I can feel good about (laughs) who is mighty to save. Who is mighty to save.
verse 6 says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's back to chapter 1 sort of stuff that was praise driving so that in the coming ages he might show, put on display, demonstrate the immeasurable riches Go back to chapter 2, verse 4. That rich in mercy, lavished on us, chapter 1. Immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Salvation isn't a reward for our faithfulness. It's something God does according to His free sovereign grace. Okay. I need a breath. Contrast this with a different religion that uses the label Christian. I thought of this yesterday when I was talking to a Mormon friend of mine. And when I was talking to my Mormon friend, I thought of Second Nephi, chapter, Second Nephi 25. I'm not making that up. Here's what the Book of Mormon says. We are made alive in Christ because of our faith. Uh, I'm biting my lip because I know lots of Christians who believe that. They're not Mormons. I know lots of evangelicals who actually believe that. I might have believed that before in my life. The Book of Mormon says we are made alive in Christ because of our faith. Well, maybe that's just one of those places where the Book of Mormon is right because, after all, it's plagiarized so much from the King James Bible. That'd be the wrong answer. So far, what we've been seeing in Ephesians is not that we're made alive because of our faith. We're made alive because of what? Because God makes us alive. Dead... Alive, dead, children of wrath, God makes us alive. Friends, faith hasn't been brought into the picture yet. Faith is really important. Faith is required for salvation, and I'm not contradicting myself. We here champion and defend and promote justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ alone. Faith is really important. Trusting in Christ is really important, but notice what's happened so far. He doesn't make us alive because of our faith. The chronology is going to be we have faith for salvation because He has made us alive. Hmm. Sometimes we might think more like Mormons than we should. Sometimes Christian Bible teachers might be teaching something a lot more like Mormonism than Ephesians chapter 2. And if your mind's getting a little bit rocked, Welcome to the party. My agenda is to get you to join the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is better than I even imagined when it comes to Him doing all of the work from beginning to end. He makes us alive together with Him. Oh, okay, here we go. Let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. For by grace you have been saved, verse 8, through faith. 
There it is. Faith is really important. Faith is required for salvation. But I'm asking you to look at the chronology and ask yourself and answer, answer yourself with the text, where does the faith come from? To be saved. Dead people don't do anything. And spiritually dead people don't do anything, including believe. God has to be the one who acts first to make us alive. And you might be saying, it sounds like you're saying regeneration comes before faith. Clarity is underrated. That's exactly what I'm saying. That is exactly what I'm saying. God has to work first. We are called to believe. We must believe. But God has to act first. And I'm getting in the weeds on this whole thing because it's actually an important matter. It doesn't work this way. Think about methodology for a second with me, if you would. It's not that if I could just get people to believe, then God will reward them with making them alive. But how much of evangelical methodology is built on that? So I need to be a good salesperson. So I need to close the deal. And I've won sales awards before, so I know how to do it. And I can get people to have some kind of faith. And you know what's going to happen then? God's going to reward them. Or maybe he's rewarding me because I'm pretty good at it as an evangelist. And then what's going to happen? Then they're going to be born again. John chapter 3, new birth, made alive. I would submit to you that it's exactly not what Ephesians 2 is teaching. And it might be one reason why we don't praise God for his amazing grace the way we should praise God for his amazing grace. Now, maybe you're wondering, how does all this fit together? This, this causes me to have a lot of questions. And, and we probably should have whole classes on, ready for more big words, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation and how all of these things work because we can track them in the Bible. But think with me about this. Ephesians chapter 2, we have predestination and election. It was Ephesians chapter 1. Hmm, how does that work? Dead in trespasses and sins. God is going to cause some, the elect, the predestined, to be made alive. Pretty clear in Ephesians 1 and 2. But then what about faith? Yeah, faith has to come too, but it's going to come as a result of that so you can be saved. So then how does evangelism work? Here's how evangelism works. I don't know who the predestined are. I don't know who the elect are. But I am called to preach Christ to everybody, all nations, anybody with a heartbeat. I preach Christ to everyone. And I know, according to Romans chapter 10, faith, think with me about this, faith comes by hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ, the gospel. And I didn't just make this stuff up last night in a bad mood or in a good mood. What I'm giving you is classic Protestant in the Protestant Reformation tradition understanding of evangelism, not to mention Ephesians 2. I preach Christ to everyone knowing that God uses the preaching of the gospel to bring about faith, which brings salvation. And if he uses the preaching of the gospel to bring about faith, that means he uses the preaching of the gospel to bring about the new birth. I just don't know who's going to, going to experience it. But God uses human means. Read Romans 10 sometime. Read it today. How will they know without a preacher? It is true. So we evangelize everyone. Maybe one other cross-reference passage and then we need to move things on. Acts chapter 13. All were, who were, 1348. All who were appointed unto eternal life. 
believed. Gives me great confidence as an evangelist. Gives me a great confidence knowing that I give God the credit. God has to work in people's hearts because only God can, but he does use human beings to be proclaimers. That's motivating. But I can't save anyone. I can't cause anyone to be born again. I can't tell anyone how to be born again, regardless of what book titles say. God works through us to do these things. How are we doing so far? I don't really want to know, but I hope you're doing okay um, because I'm insecure that way. So, This is exciting stuff. This, this, is, this is great stuff. I, I know someone who didn't like Acts 13.48 so much that they went to the New World Translation to come up with a different translation, the Jehovah's Witnesses translation, to come up with a different translation because they couldn't live with the fact that all who were appointed unto eternal life believed. This doesn't kill evangelism, friends. This fuels my evangelism. It fuels it. Okay, where in the world was I? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is really important. People really do need to believe. In order to be saved, you have to believe. But the million-dollar question is, where does that come from? It has to ultimately come from God based upon our text. We could cross-reference to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. It's been granted to you to believe, but we won't for the sake of time. But please let it stick in your mind. God made us alive. Then this helps. How about verse 8? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Which is the great litmus, right? God made us alive. You know what I did? And you go, ah, that guy doesn't understand. Boasting, if, if, if there's any kind of bragging or any kind of boasting, you, you've been found out. that You don't get it. I don't get it because if I have any kind of boasting, if there's any mutual congratulations, 99%, I did 1% or whatever it is, then I have a little little room for boasting at least and I don't understand that God makes people alive. So it is a great litmus when you're trying to think through is something patently Christian or not in its understanding of the gospel, understanding of humankind, understanding of God, Christ, how salvation works. Is there even just a little bit of room for boasting? Not if God makes us alive. And so what will we do if that's the case? We'll join the saints in heaven like we learn about in the book of Revelation. And there, what are they saying? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. It's all Him. It's all Him. Every ounce of it is Him. Every bit of it is Him. Before we move on to verse 10, I'm asked now and then to try to help people find a new church because they're moving to a different city or a different town or people just want help thinking through theology and weighing in because it actually does matter and it actually affects praise. It actually affects methods and how we do things. And it is amazing how many denominations and churches have regeneration after faith. Absolutely amazing. I submit to you, if you will, Ephesians chapter 2. We've got the gospel wrong. It doesn't mean there aren't Christians who are confused. I'm thankful that God is patient with us. 
But we end up getting the gospel wrong when we have to believe first and then God regenerates us. Okay, let's move on to the next part. Verse 10, here's where good works fit in because good, good works really are important. It says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, his masterpiece. It's a, a word used in the ancient world for artwork. For we are his workmanship. And notice we're his workmanship. We're not our own. He owns the credits. He owns the rights and privileges. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's fascinating because that harkens back to Genesis 1 creation. But now we're new creation. There's something new that's happened here, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice, not by good works, but for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So please notice, the basis of our salvation is not our good works. It would ultimately be the work of Christ. But just because the basis of our salvation is not our works doesn't mean there's no place for good works. Where do good works fit in? They come as a fruit. They come as a result. But we're seeing here in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10 that they do come. I can't tell you how many times I've written and drawn pictures about this on a napkin and explaining the gospel to people who are hung up on the good works part. And I welcome them and say, oh, I'm so thankful you're concerned about good works. They really are important. And the Bible has a lot to say about them. Let me explain it to you. But it's not good works and faith lead to salvation. Biblical Christianity, authentic Christianity, it is faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone because he does all of the good works leads to salvation, first arrow. Next arrow leads to good works. There's a place. And it doesn't always happen, but it's amazing how many times it seems to be the aha moment to go, oh, and it's right there in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10. There is some usefulness to this thing called biblical Christianity, and it actually does change people's lives. Not for their salvation, but in light of their salvation. Okay, let's move on to verse 11. Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that would be non-Jews, if you're not a Jew, you are a Gentile, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ or Messiah, alienated, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. So Paul's addressing a Gentile audience, but they, they, they know about Judaism. They know about the God of the Old Testament, just like you do. Maybe we're a little bit removed, but you can still appreciate the fact that you have the nations, the Gentiles, the godless, and then you have the Jews, the ones who have heard from God things like this. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Those covenantal promises, those solemn oaths where God has sworn to be gracious to this unique people. No one deserves graciousness. No one deserves mercy. But God sovereignly called out this unique people and he said, I will be your God. You will be my people. He said a lot of other things, but that encapsulates the big idea there. And they're unlike the nations, unlike the Gentiles. And you need to know that in the Bible, especially if you're newer to the Bible, there, there are two kinds of people in the world. 
Um, if we back up even further, based upon where he's going to go, there's one race, it's called the human race. There's one race, we all come from Adam and Eve. And then in time, we have this unique people of God, Israel, the Jews. And then you have everybody else, the Gentiles. So here where the argument's going is, you Gentiles, because he's addressing Gentiles, not only were you dead in trespasses and sins like everybody, uh, and demonically led like everybody, I want you all to know that it's a double, trip, it's a triple whammy. Not only spiritually dead, not only demonically led. I can't rhyme that, but I'm trying. But I won't. But you're not even in the right zip code, spiritually speaking. Because you weren't associated with the covenants of promise. You weren't associated with the promises given to the unique nation of Israel. So it's more insult to injury than it says in verse, uh, the, the next, uh, verse 12. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now. Oh, I, I noticed something like that earlier. What, what a great series of contrasts. It's but God. And now, but now. In Christ, in Messiah, deliverer, savior, provider, protector, spiritually speaking. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought, notice the acting agent is God, brought near, he's the one who does it, how? Near by the blood, by the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, for he himself is our peace. So he's our only peace. He's our personal peace, if you will, personal savior, for he himself is the one, is our peace. There's so many great contrasts. I'll just point out one other one. We did see in verse 12, without God, no hope. And now we have the one who is our peace. We had hostility with God. We were without God in a good sense, hope, hopelessly, but now he, he is our peace. So not, we not only have peace, we have peace in a person, our peace who has made us both. Both would refer to who? Jew, Jew and Gentile. One and has broken down in his flesh, in his, through his blood, his death, his substitutionary work, the dividing wall of hostility. So there's hostility between us and God. Romans 5 says we're enemies. So there's hostility here. Here he's talking about that same kind of hostility, but he also brings in the other kind of hostility, and it's hostility between Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew, because there has been radical hostility between those kinds of people. I'll submit to you, if we can solve that hostility, which we can in Christ, we can solve any kind of hostility between different kinds of people because we are the human race and Jesus is the savior of all different kinds of people, the one and only savior, Jew and Gentile and beyond. Notice how he does this. He says in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. I take that mean to mean the ceremonial law in the old covenant world, sacrificial system, uh, priests, prophets, all of those things associated with it. He's abolished that. How? Why? Because Christ has fulfilled all of those kinds of obligations. So we don't need lambs anymore because he is the lamb. We don't need priests anymore because he is the ultimate high priest. All of that's been fulfilled. And if it's all been fulfilled, therefore it's been abolished. So by abolishing the law of commandments, 
expressed in ordinances, and that would have definitely separated Jew from Gentile. Let's keep reading. That he might create in himself. Creation terminology again. Stuff only God can do. We don't do this ourselves. That he might create in himself one new man, one new spiritual entity in place of the two, so making peace, peace between us and God, but peace also between fellow human beings, even where there's the greatest kind of antagonism and might reconcile us both to God in one body through how? How does this happen? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It's violent, the kind of terminology he uses, but he, he's, he's putting it to an end. It's done. It's over. If you're in Christ, if you trust in Christ, what happens? Yes, this hostile relationship is over, and now we have the basis for this hostile relationship being over, even when it comes to the most kind, the, the most intense kinds of hostile relationships. Because there's one Savior. Yes, he's a Jewish Savior. But it's for good reason he's referred to as the Savior of the world, Jew and Gentile. This is, this is great stuff. I mean, this is lofty theology. This is a lofty understanding of God, lofty understanding of Christ, lowly understanding, but you know what I mean, lofty understanding of hum, human beings, how things can be solved, how things work. If, our, if you have your greatest problem solved, and you have your greatest problem solved if you're trusting in Christ because now God is not hostile toward you anymore and you're not hostile to God anymore. That's your greatest problem, right? Think with me. And if I have my greatest problem solved, why can't we be friends? <laughs> why can't we? Right? We can be. I didn't sing first hour, so you guys get a double blessing. <laughs> or not. There's a foundation, there's a basis for me getting along with my greatest enemy. And the same is true for you. And ultimately, it's a sure thing if we're just thinking clearly. Because I, my standing before God is a standing that's in Christ. I've been adopted into the family by virtue of his works, not mine. And if you're a Christian, your standing before God is the exact same standing as mine you too have been adopted into the family and it does in fact make us spiritual siblings. This is extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary to consider how amazing grace is. And it's all pretty simple. I haven't had to do a lot of explaining to make things hopefully somewhat clear here. Verse 17 says, And He, Christ, came and preached. So the good one came and preached good news. And all of this is good news in light of chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And He came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. What's so fascinating about that is both actually needed peace with God through Christ ultimately. So both heard it through Christ. Then verse 18, for through Him, he, He's the, the object of our faith. He's the object of our praise. For through Him we both have access, notice the unity, in one spirit to the Father. 
If we could only get this straight in our minds into a watching, dying, suffering, fighting world. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, Jew or Gentile, with the saints and members of the household of God. I think he's even reaching, reaching back there even further to, to before the church times. So, so we're joining together with all believers now because all believers need a Savior in Messiah ultimately. The saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, notice it's inclusive, the whole structure, there's not some outer structure and inner structure or two different structures in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Which is also really radical because a temple is where you go to meet with God uniquely. So in the Old Testament, tabernacle, then temple, God is omnipresent, but there is this unique place where you go to meet with God in a special, unique kind of way. It's the temple. But we know that Jesus in John 2 said, I'm the temple because that physical one is passing away because of fulfillment and because of abolishing, as we've heard. So it's going to go away. And Jesus says, you come in and through me. And then Jesus goes on to say, and the apostles go on to say, the church becomes this unique spiritual entity, this one new united man, Jew and Gentile, all different kinds of people. And now we uniquely dwell with God and meet with God and experience the blessings of God. And he's going on to talk about church, even in chapter three. I realize that I kind of read temple of God built into all this kind of stuff and it's kind of a yawner, but it ought not be a yawner. Really? Meeting with God? No hostility? Not holding his, my trespasses against me? There's a foundation and a basis for not only peace on a vertical level, but on a horizontal level? Um, yep, yep, yep. And he's moving to talk about the church. A holy, unique, distinct, you can't find this anywhere else. Nowhere else will offer this kind of answer. A holy temple in the Lord, in him, verse 22 says, you also are being built together. Remember, verse 20 talked about, talked about building the foundation. Apostles and prophets, Christ is the cornerstone. But now on top of that, heritage, in him, you also are, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Grace brings that. We've gone from dead in trespasses and sins to now being a part of this unique spiritual building by the one true spirit who can do what nothing else can do, no one else can do, dwelling place for God. Great point of application, and here is the great point of application. It is now, I would suggest, perhaps now and only now, can you say with greater appreciation, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Him. To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. Staggering to the mind, I hope warming to the soul. And He's just going to go even further beyond this and build upon this reality of the body of Christ. And then he's going to take this even further and talk about this is why you want to live differently when you go to work tomorrow, why you want to live differently if you're single, why you want to live differently if you're married, why you want to live differently in this world as we await 
the great consummation when we see Christ and are made like Him. So, by God's grace, may it be, may it be that you better understanding what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins, a child of wrath, even as the rest of mankind, by nature, help you to see Christ as the one who's a great Savior, the one and only great Savior who is our peace. It changes everything. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time together at Omaha Bible Church. We do sincerely pray for believers around the world that you would be encouraging and building them up in the like precious faith that we have. We long for that day when we will no longer struggle, whether it's with our own sins or the sins of others. But until that day, continue to encourage us to look to ourselves so that we know who we really are. And to look to others for who they really are. But then to see who Christ really is and what he's done for us. And then to have a different perspective on ourselves. And a different perspective on others. And may in the meantime, may we find ourselves speaking truthfully about Christ. The good one in whom there is good news to be found. In Jesus' name, amen.